Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by Floridian. This is the first of three episodes in our mini-series called Floridians. I'm preparing for our fourth season, so I'd like to spend the time between now and then talking with some important Floridians who do amazing things for their communities. This week, I spoke with Laura Von Mutius of Audubon, Florida. We were supposed to chat a few weeks ago, and I was actually supposed to visit the Birds of Prey Center where she works. We had scheduled it for literally the day before Orange County was officially put under our stay-at-home order. Naturally, we had to postpone until everything passed and my trip to visit the birds in residence at the center is still a few months out. But I reached out to Laura two weeks ago because I needed some help. You see, with everything going on, the park where I usually go for walks has been closed. So to keep up a routine of walking every day or every other day, I started walking around the concrete hills of the Altamont Mall. On my first trip, I found an osprey nest. On the second, I found another. Two walks later, I found a third nest. By the start of May, I had found a trio of female ospreys resting on nests with eggs presumably below. They were on top of lampposts in a parking lot. The lamps had been given numbers so folks could remember where they had parked. So, using that, they became nests 33, 11, and 14. I soon gave them names corresponding to their respective first ladies of the United States. Thus, Sarah, Bess, and Jane became my project. Soon, baby chicks began peeking their little heads up over the edge of the nest to peer down at me as I walked below. On my walk home, I'd pass the lake and see the male ospreys diving low over the water snatching fish from the surface. In the quiet times in Altamont Springs, the ospreys have quickly become my friends. Now, I don't know a lot about ospreys, nor how they function, and if I was going to tell you about them, I'd rather have an expert do it. So I called Laura Von Mutius to chat ospreys, eagles, owls, and the joys of education. I'm Laura Von Mutius. I am the Audubon Center for Birds of Prey Education Manager. So I've worked there for about three and a half years, and I do a lot of our outreach programs as well as uh, on-site field trips, our social media, and dealing with a lot of education. Pretty much if somebody learns something when they are at the center, it's all because of me. (laughs) (laughs) So we have a, a few different program areas at the center, one of them being the bird of prey rehab which is a focus that we do have clinic staff and our vet staff that works with those birds Um, but we also have permanent resident raptors that are non-releasable so they've been injured and just we haven't been able to get them back to the the, the point that they could survive on their own so we do uh, house about 50 permanent resident birds that live at our center and those are the birds I work with quite a bit more Uh, we've got about 17 of them who are glove trained education ambassadors so they are glove trained to stand on our arms and uh, ride in kennels, so they go off-site with me to visit schools and festivals, um, as well as see people on on site at the center. Um, When we're open to the public, they can come and visit and see those birds as well. The Audubon Center for Birds of Prey is nestled in a back corner of Maitland, a small suburban city on the border of Orange and Seminole County. If you drive through the historic center of Eatonville, the hometown of author Zora Neale Hurston, you will find yourself being directed toward the Audubon. I've passed it a few times while taking long drives through this area, and I regret that I haven't paid them a visit before now. 
They're a very unique little place, not just because of their function, but also because of their origins. Because all of that area used to be orange groves, and it was, so our property was a family home. That There is an old house on our property that was built in 1924. It was a family home, and then eventually that family actually donated it to Audubon, Florida, who used it for offices for quite a few years. And then a staff member named Doris Mager in 79 was doing some bird of prey rehab out of her home because she saw the need for it in the area. Nobody else was doing it. And eventually she brought the idea to Audubon, who worked with FWC, um, to turn the center into what it is today. But they made Doris raise the money herself. So Doris, wow. she actually climbed up 50 feet in a, a pine tree and sat in an unoccupied eagle's nest. She did a nest sit-in and stayed for an entire week. And that did raise enough awareness and, and funds that she was able to start the center. And we are what we are today because of her. And what they are today is an amazing place. As far as specializing in birds of prey, we are the biggest facility east of the Mississippi that has the most sort of foremost knowledge of working with raptors. Wow. They are not only an education center. Visitors can come in and meet the 17 raptors that live there permanently due to severe injuries or other factors, but the property also has a clinic that is vital to the Florida avian ecosystem. Of course, the clinic is crazy this time of year specifically because it's springtime. We get about 700 patients into the clinic a year, but May alone we'll get about 200 um, just because baby season and everything's crazy. Wow. So they're, they're going, yeah, they admitted 17 patients yesterday alone. Um, so they're going crazy in the clinic right now. Um, but when a guest comes and visit, of course, they're not always seeing that behind the scenes craziness. They get to just enjoy, we've got three acres of property and it's, uh, everybody is always shocked. It's in the middle of a neighborhood. Yeah. So you're like driving past houses and then so you stumble across our center and it's kind of this little hidden gem. We're right on a lake. So it's got a beautiful sort of atmosphere it's fairly quiet. You hear the birds. Um, we have a native landscaping, so we attract a lot of just wild songbirds as well. It's kind of this little mini oasis. With the coronavirus sweeping the planet, the clinic is still in operation, albeit with obvious social distancing edicts put in place. Nature still goes on, and the native birds still need assistance from the Audubon. Like Laura said, spring is a difficult time for these birds, and as much as they can, Audubon is working to support, despite everything. So our most common injury that we actually see and can, and can identify is car collisions. And that's anything from like bald eagles and our vultures that eat carry on. Obviously, that's going to put them near the side of the road for the roadkill. And then um, owls and hawks, when they're hunting, they're very focused on watching the prey. So they're not seeing cars and things coming at them. So car collisions is definitely the worst we see, the most we see. And then we also get... Um, anything from gunshot wounds to poisonings, natural illnesses that birds get, um, entanglements. It's mostly citizens that find the bird and they call us. We're able to talk them through sort of safely picking up that raptor and transporting it to our center. We only have uh, seven full-time staff and then a handful of volunteers, of course. Um, so we don't have the ability to go rescue the birds ourselves. So we do kind of rely on the public to help when possible. For larger species, then we can rely on like county animal services in some of the counties in the state will help or FWC will help if it's a bald eagle, for example. Speaking of bald eagles, they are one of the many native Florida birds that the center works with. We have about uh, 20 different species and then 17 individuals that are part 
part of the education ambassadors. Um, so we've got a few bald eagles, of course, as our fan favorites, um, a couple different species of owls. So we do have a great horned owl, barred owls, as well as eastern screech owls. Those are also, again, everybody loves owls. <laughs> and then uh, some types of hawks. Uh, we do have an osprey, a peregrine falcon, a small-tailed kite. Uh, so, yeah, we have a pretty good range. We try to keep, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of everything on, on site so people can see their range of raptors that live in Florida. So are these all, all of these birds are native to Florida? They are, or they pass through. Sure. So, like, bald eagles, of course, will have year-round. Peregrine falcons, for example, we just get during migration as they pass through the state. Um, but, yes, if they're found here in Florida, then they would could be rescued and brought to our clinic, and then that's how we end up getting those permanent residents. Now, I don't know about you, but I forget that bald eagles live in Florida at all. I know they do. We have a few preserves specifically dedicated to their preservation in our state. So I asked Laura how often she gets that same response, and what she said next is still shocking to me. I have to say, I think I forget, and, I, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, I forget that bald eagles are here in Florida. Do you encounter that a lot, or am I a complete anomaly in forgetting that bald eagles live in Florida? No, people are, I, I'm, I'm actually shocked the amount of times people say they're like, we've got bald eagles here. We actually have the second highest population of bald eagles in the United States. Um, behind Alaska, which they're like pigeons up there, they're everywhere. Um, but here in Florida, there's thousands of bald eagles, and we do have um, some that will stay year-round, and then some of the younger ones will ma- migrate in and out. I wish you could see the shock on my face. I, <laughs> that is, that I had no idea. We have the second largest population of bald eagles in the, in the country. That's crazy. Which, when you think about it, makes sense, because they are mostly fish eaters, they need to be near bodies of water, and in Florida, we have rivers and lakes and ponds, and we're on near the ocean, so there's just water everywhere, which makes a perfect habitat for them. And Laura is interacting with people a lot, bringing birds out to schools or festivals or environmental events. It's her job in education to not only present the information concerning the birds, but also to handle the creatures themselves. And she finds that being in the same room as the raptors does much of the job for her. What is the sort of response you get from animals, like getting people getting to be face to face with these animals? Uh, shock and awe a, a lot of times. It and makes my job easy, right? So I'm trying to teach people about raptors and some of the things that we can do to help their populations in the wild. And it, my job is just easy. If I'm holding a bald eagle, people are listening to what I'm saying. So then, you know, it's really, they get all the credit, or I get all the credit, I guess, for them looking good. <laughs> but yes, I am always um, happy to see from kids all the way to senior citizens that just get so excited to see some of these species up close, especially the bald eagles. That's, again, a big one. That's always a fan favorite. We, so we kind of think of the birds as tools that we're using to be able to educate. So I think, and Audubon agrees, by using these live animals, people are making sort of lasting connections to the species, to wildlife in general, and then hopefully being spurred on to do things to help them um, and be able to better conserve their species in our state. And by the way, she does wear one of those huge leather gloves when dealing with the birds. So the main one I use is it like it goes all the way up past my elbow. And I use that for like bald eagles or red tailed hawks from the larger raptors. And it's got three layers of leather thick. Um, 
even if they weren't trying to, a raptor's talons are quite sharp. Um, and if they were trying, then their grip strength is really high. So like a great horned owl, for example, has a grip strength in their talons of over 500 pounds of pressure per square inch. Mm. So they could easily snap bones and things like that if they really wanted wow. to, um, which is why we wear protective gear. <laughs> Despite the danger that can be present in working with creatures like this, it's the area that Laura prefers. She shares that before working with the birds of prey, she had another job with birds, and it was not so amiable. So I did work with parrots at the Central Florida Zoo when I was there, and I really do not like parrots. <laughs> and part of it is, and the, at least the way I've sort of thought of it, is they, they're really intelligent, and you know they have a level of like a three-year-old intelligence I've read in other places. You, but you can see them sort of solving those puzzles, um, and that, I don't know, that's a little unnerving to me that I just feel like they're plotting my demise. <laughs> Where raptors, at least, they are intelligent, but it's very instinctual-based, so I sort of you know what to expect with them. Right, there's a reason why they're doing what they're doing. Sure. Um, so I like that. Um, as well as, you know, they're just magnificent. You know, being at the top, you know, apex predators in most cases of their food chains, that's pretty incredible animals to work with. And even though she says she's not supposed to, she shares that there are certain birds at the center that are her favorites. Okay, so we're not supposed to have favorites, but I do, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I figured that was the case. So two, two of my favorites would be Maple, and she is a barred owl, and she uh, was one of the first baby owls that I ever got to sort of be around from. She came in literally a couple days old. She fit in the palm of our hand, and so being with her from the time she was so little until now she's two, two and a half years old, um, so that's she's special to me for that reason and she's also kind of feisty she doesn't always like everybody so i, I feel honored that i've been chosen that someone that i can work that i was allowed to work with her um and then the other one is our swallowtail kite his name is gretel and he is just the goofiest bird <laughs> of prey i've ever met oh my gosh he's just ridiculous um they don't have you know personalities like humans of course but they have some funny quirks and they are all different when you get to, to learn their behaviors as an individual bird and he's just a big old goof so i love him for that now i have two cats i love them very much it's easy to love an animal you are with all the time whether that be a maine coon kitten that you've raised from infancy or a swallowtail kite with a ridiculous personality I think when animals are at a distance, it's harder to feel that connection. It's why they bring the birds themselves for education purposes with the Audubon. Being in the same room as them can change things. It reminds me a little of Jane Goodall. When she spent her early time in Tanzania, she would watch the chimpanzees from a distance. After observing them for some time, she started giving them names. She started attributing details to their personalities, and she learned more about their family dynamic. The science community was critical of this behavior, but she refused to apologize. They had become friends to her. How could she not give them names? Now, I know I'm not Jane Goodall, but I gave my Ospreys names, and for a little while they felt like friends. It's hard to not feel attached. You want nothing but the best for them, and in hard times, their consistency can be a comfort. Now, thanks to Laura, I know much, much more about them. I told her of my nests and the babies and their location atop the streetlights. I'm not surprised that they're nesting on top of those light posts. It's kind of perfect, perfect spot for them. They like to be some of the highest around so that they can obviously have a good 
viewpoint of what's around and they have to be near water since they're mostly fish eaters like 99% of their diet or something outrageously high is from fish specifically uh, and actually an interesting thing about ospreys is they're one of the few birds of prey species you actually can tell male and female apart they are sexually dimorphic and so you can look at their chest is how you can actually tell them apart so the, the osprey chest is white but they have a small patch of brown around their neck we like to call it a necklace so if they've got a brown necklace then it's a female if they just have a couple brown feathers or rarely none at all then it's a male that's kind of neat that you can actually you'll be able to spot who is who from my window i can see the male ospreys nearly every day as they hover over the water watching fish below the surface and making their move Laura tells me that osprey, with their diet composed of 99% fish, are specially evolved to hunt fish. They are specialized for fish hunting. They have amazing vision that allows them to see the ultraviolet spectrum, so they can actually see the fish swimming under the water. Their talons are extra curved under, literally big old fishing hooks at the end of their toes. And then they have the ability, raptors have four toes, three in the front and one in the back sort of like a thumb. So ospreys have the ability to actually take their third toe and rotate it all the way around to have two in the front, two in the back. And they do that when they're hunting to grab the fish. And they've learned to fly aerodynamically with the fish. They actually have to turn the fish to face the same direction as themselves. Um, so they'll watch, if you watch them hunt, they'll dive down with their feet, grab that fish. And then once they come out of the water, they turn it so that the fish is facing like them. And that way they can cut through the air easier. Another one is at the bottom of their feet, they're called spicules, and they are extra bumps on the bottom of their feet, and they act like treads on the bottom of our sneakers. So those extra bumps help them grab onto the fish in this house, you know, how slimy fish are. These birds are lucky, though most animals are always at risk thanks to humanity's expansion into their natural ecosystem, the osprey's not threatened. They have a huge population, and Laura tells me that there's only one type of osprey worldwide. If you see an osprey, it's an osprey. They're kind of a cool species where you can actually, the same ospreys that we have here, they also are found in Europe, and they'll go through various countries as they migrate through Europe. They are found across different parts of the world, which is kind of cool, and it's not even considered a subspecies. They're just the same species around the world. Wherever you go, there they are. But, of course, that's rare. These animals are in a safe condition globally, while so many are not. As Laura said, so many birds face tremendous danger every single day, from car collisions to invaders and other conditions caused by habitat loss. I'm always amazed, on the other hand, that there are people who put in the work to undo the accidental sins of humanity. And the good news is that organizations like Audubon, specifically the Birds of Prey Center, are not alone. Laura tells me that other organizations work together to care for the animals in the state. And there's actually one in Apopka that's the Avian Reconditioning Center. There is one over in Tampa Bay that's Tampa Bay Rescue, uh, Raptor Rescue. So there is others in the area. The good thing is a, a lot of us, you know, the, the animal rehab world is only so big. So a lot of the different facilities across Florida, we do know one another. We can communicate and help one another when possible. So we'll transport birds or um, the facility up in Apopka is the closest one to us. They hate dealing with ospreys, but they have a wonderful foster mom for great horned owls. So we can actually transport birds between the two facilities to get them the best care that they need. I don't know about you, but everything about friendship between bird sanctuaries makes my heart swell. They are fighting a fight that need be fought together. The Audubon Clinic specifically has a vow, a protocol that they always follow 
we want to make sure that that bird is is actually we ideally have it in a better condition than when it was even before it was injured so we try to make sure that it's in tip-top shape and despite everything the clinic is open working to keep that vow maple and gretel and all their other feathered friends await our return when the center opens again in july we can all go pick a favorite as well until then i'll keep an eye on my ospreys it's nice knowing spring still came and if a bird is in danger if my birds are in danger the safety net of these sanctuaries will always be there to catch them. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you're here. If you've never listened to this show before, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. I've actually written many, many episodes about the Audubon and their history, from their origins to Guy Bradley to their condition today. If you'd like to support the Birds of Prey Center, there are a few ways you can do so. They had to cancel their summer camp, but they're still fundraising. They actually just had a big fundraising event this past weekend. Uh, Mother's Day weekend every year. It's our big sort of community fundraiser where the center's free to visit that day. It's called Baby Owl Shower, and it started many, many years ago. They threw a baby shower for an oops baby that was born at the center, and we've just kept it up for the last, you know, 30-some-odd years of having this event. So it's actually going to be virtual this year, which I think will still be fun and exciting for people to get to watch the birds from home, but it won't be the same, of course, as having the hundreds of people come to the center that day. You can go and check that out, as well as give financially through their Amazon wish list and donations on their site spread the word <laughs> so again we are typically open to the public and there's it's a really cheap admission fee of eight dollars but that little bit does add up and be able to help us so tell your friends and family about raptors in the area and our center and send um it's a great place to bring if you've got friends and family out from out of town to come visit our center um so a little little slice of you know sort of central florida that way and um yeah spread the word that we're there all of the music used in this episode is, of course, from Lobo Loco. All of the photography used in the social media is from Lauren Nix. You can check out Lobo Loco's music at the link below, and you can find Lauren's work at lauren.nix.photo on Instagram. Nix is spelled N-I-X. You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod, and you can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. You can also follow my personal account on Twitter at WFM. Nick. Next week on Floridians, the one and only Craig Pittman. We sat down to discuss his newest book, Cattail, and the nature of writing about Florida. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and be well. Have a good week. <laughs> <laughs>